This is the Santita Jackson Show. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Santita Jackson Show. It's a joy to be with you today. On the last day of January, where is the... Where is the winter going? And it's going, I mean, it's getting warmer and warmer and warmer. I mean, when I was growing up, it was cold here at this time. But look, I'll take it. I'm Santita Jackson coming to you from WCPT 820, the nation's largest progressive talk radio station. Want to know what your thoughts are today about this killing at a hospital in the West Bank. That is supposed to be out of bounds in... uh in warfare. And indeed, one of the persons who was killed was paralyzed and had been hospitalized since October. They walked in and killed this 18-year-old boy. The IDF did, as they were disguised as civilians. What does that say? Where are we going? When will the killing stop? And then Brittany Watts, a young 34-year-old mother in Ohio. Uh, She'd been suffering for days. She'd gone to the emergency room. And it turns out she was in the process of miscarrying. Nearly lost her life. And no one would do anything for her. They kept sending her home. Can you imagine being in that kind of excruciating pain? So I've heard. I've not had a child. But everyone says, whew, it's, it's a pain you will never, ever forget. But you put it into perspective when you have the joy of having a child. Must be a lot of joy, everybody. That having been said, she nearly lost her life and nearly lost her freedom because when she finally, they kept sending her home from the hospital, at least they did that twice, and when she went home, she spontaneously miscarried because the child had died in utero, just as had been suspected. Well, uh, she was going to be put in prison for disturbing a corpse. Let's talk about that. That's where this... These abortion bans are going, and this happened just before uh, these uh, reproductive rights were codified in Ohio law just a few months ago, just before they were protected. So let's talk about this. And indeed, she's an African-American woman, and black women in particular uh, are arrested more. They're prosecuted more than anybody else for cases just like these. So we need to talk about this on the Santita Jackson Show. So I want you to call me at 773-763-9278. What's the story of the day? What do you think is really, really happening out here? And what really concerns you as we go into uh, the primary season? We're right here. And indeed, in Illinois, in March, we are here. We're here, everybody. So... I'm here for it, so let's get to it. I promise you we'll be up on Facebook and YouTube in just a few minutes. But in the meantime, let us get to some of these headlines. A deal to pause fighting in the Gaza Strip is being negotiated. A six-week break in fighting between Israel and Hamas. The freeing of all remaining civilian hostages and the release of some Palestinian prisoners uh, held by Israel. Will it happen? Well, according to the Washington Post, parts of the deal have been accepted in principle by Israel and is under consideration by Hamas. We will see House Republicans move toward impeaching the Homeland Security Secretary. This is something that has not happened in more than 100 years. They voted today to advance their case against Alejandro Mayorkas to the House. They argue without showing clear evidence that he has failed to secure the southern border. What now? Even if the House votes for impeachment, Mayorkas faces little prospect of removal by the Senate, which is negotiating border security by legislation. 
the lead prosecutor in Donald Trump's Georgia case, settled his divorce. Nathan Wade's divorce received national attention after he was accused of having an improper relationship with Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis. Yesterday's settlement allows Wade and Willis to avoid testimony that could have given the former president material to undermine the election interference case. A judge ordered Tesla to undo Elon Musk's $56 billion pay package because it was unfair, a Delaware court ruled yesterday. Shareholders sued Musk over the 2018 compensation plan, which helped make Musk the world's richest person. Hundreds of NFL players diagnosed with dementia have been denied payouts, everybody. I know a few of them. The NFL promised to pay every former player who developed dementia, CTE, or other brain diseases linked to concussions. Remember Dave Dewerson from the Chicago Bears, a very dear friend. Well, uh, remember he killed himself, didn't shoot himself in the head, shot himself in the heart because he wanted his brain examined. God bless you, Dave Dewerson. Over 1,600 players, though, in addition to Dave Dewerson, have received payouts, but nearly 1,100 claims have been denied. At least 14 players died after failing to qualify, but were found to have had CTE post-death via autopsy. What do you think about that, everybody? Call me, text me at 773-763-9278. Should the NFL pay these players? And remember, the NFL is a 501c3, Pastor Vicki Johnson. They are a charitable organization. These folks, what these folks are able to do with... um, (laughs) With uh, with taxes and whatnot, it's just it's amazing. It's amazing in Chicago. We're gonna have a high of 40 degrees today, partly cloudy. Minneapolis, St. Paul, 50 degrees. Wow, and clear. The Raptors 118, the Bulls 107. The Timberwolves will be facing the Mavericks tonight. The NHL is off tonight, and of course, we're waiting on the Super Bowl on the 11th, everybody. And those are some of the headlines on the Santita Jackson Show. Pastor Vicky Johnson, you were honored yesterday. You have not won. But two pulpits, so proud of you. Amen, amen. Amen. So what happened yesterday? Just very quickly before you give us the good news. Yesterday, the Chicago Urban League honored around 30 women that are pastoring in the city of Chicago and vicinity for the work that we do. And it was um, spearheaded by... Their president and by Bishop Shirley Coleman. So it was it was a wonderful afternoon. Well, you know what? It's, I'm mindful of the fact that it is still very difficult for women to get pulpits. We support pulpits, but we're not able to get them. And so uh, your accomplishments are stellar. And the fact that you have two. Oh, my goodness. Bless your heart. And you and you serve people and you serve them so well. And um, just love you so much, and and am so proud of you. So yes. you know what we need it, some. Yes, no, 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 yeah, please. And, and it was also not just a um, come dress up and be honored, eat good food, but it was also um, to support the initiative of about women, black women, <laughs> being uh, higher targeted in violent uh, crimes of violence. Mm-hmm. than others, and so we're going to be drawing attention to that. Uh, Stephanie Coleman is going to be presenting something to City Hall and so that we can give attention to that and do something to make black women safer in this city, and in the country, and in the world. 
Well, I love that because, you know, it is so true. That's why we're talking about Brittany Watts today. Yes. Um, yes. I mean, this is someone who had gone, when I read that she had gone to the hospital several times because she's in this excru- excruciating pain. They're worried that she's going to die. They're worried that she's going to get sepsis. They're worried that she's just going to, she's going to miscarry. They sent her home anyway. I'm like, who does that? Are you serious right now? But, and, um, and it happens to black women more. Oh, in right. 2024. In I mean, 2024. When, 2024, Pastor. I mean, and when you think that someone like a, oh, goodness, and, and a Serena Williams, one of the best conditioned bodies on earth, mm-hmm. when you mm-hmm. see that her team, ostensibly some of the best doctors on earth, uh, of course, mm-hmm. of course, they have to save the life of one of the biggest athletes on earth. They wouldn't pay attention to her when she said, pain, pain, clot, clot. It's coming, it's coming. Mm-hmm. Unbelievable, unbelievable. So, you know, thank you for the work that you're doing, and you've got to come back on the show and talk about that. Now, that I want yes. to hear about how we can all, because if black women are safer, indigenous women will be safer. Latino women, will, yes. Latinas will be safer. Uh, white women will right. be safer. Asian women, everybody will be safer when those who are least safe have mm. their safety insured. That's the way it works. You know, it's That's just right. like Israeli security is tied to Palestinian justice. You know, Bible mm. tells you, I don't need to tell you this. You got a seat at the table in the presence of your enemy. That enemy is God's child too. <laughs> right. Get over it. Get over it, folks. <laughs> this, this is how it works. That's the deal. <laughs> That's the deal. Right. Right. What is the good news today? We certainly do need it. Well, good morning, Santita, and good morning to all of your morning stars and friends. There is good news. In one of my classes that I took at the Lutheran School of Theology on spiritual formation, an assignment was given for us to write a rule of life, our rule of life. I'm going to share with you what I wrote. My rule of life is was taught to me as a child by my mother, and it has been the golden rule. You know it. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. I have put concerted effort into living up to this rule, sometimes falling short, yet I tried. What I have found in latter years is that in living by the golden rule, sometimes you can get ruled out. Expending so much energy for others can be draining, especially when you are in the constant company of those who are governed by other rules of life. As a means to avoid burnout, I have expanded my rule of life to include self-care. I can hear God singing to me, take good care of yourself you belong to me. Love it. I have long said Monday is my Sabbath, but I have in recent years allowed more and more things to creep into this day. I may have to create another day of Sabbath or be more vigilant about keeping Mondays free to do the things I desire. When I give care or attention to myself, 
My attitude is better when dealing with others. And so I will give more attention and care to myself. So I encourage you today to think about your rule of life. Think about it. Write it down. Read it. It might make a difference. If you will do this, and I hope that you will, then to me, that's good news. Amen to that. Live consciously. Hadn't even thought about writing up your own rule, but that is uh, that is not your own rule, God's rule, and how it applies to your life. Let me get that right. Let me get that right. Let me get that right. But thank you so much. How can we worship with you? You can worship with me at Lebanon Lutheran Church, 9 a.m. at 131 South Manistee in Chicago. And at 11.30 a.m., you can worship with me at St. Thomas Lutheran, 80th and Jeffrey Boulevard. Both services are on Facebook and live and in person. I love it. I love it. I love it. We love you, Pastor. And congratulations to you. And please, uh, let's talk about you coming back in about this program so that we can make black women and all women safe. That what you've done unto the least of these, you've also done unto me. Remember that, everybody. When you take care of the people who are most vulnerable, everybody wins. Everybody wins. Everybody wins. Pastor Vicki Johnson, sending you so much love today. Thank you. Love you. Thank you. Love you. Love you. And we've got Dr. Shanina Knight and sending her much love today. Infection preventionist, registered nurse, college lecturer, mom, wife, business owner, all of these things. You do a lot of interacting with the public, and yet you stay really pretty safe. What's on your mind today? Good morning, Santita. How are you? I'm doing great. It's wonderful hearing your voice. That's awesome, yours as well. So I think um, today, more so than anything, it's just reminding people some of the important tips for interacting out in public. I don't think it's something that we pay attention to as we should, Um, meaning that, yes, we do understand how important hand hygiene is. We understand that masks may be important at certain times. Of course, I've seen people still physically distance, especially from someone that they notice has a bad cough. But really, what does all of that mean if you're not doing things at the correct time? If you're not thinking about when are things most crucial, right? It's almost like with anything. Like, you can have the proper tools, but if you don't use them at the right time, then it's almost like not having them. So in this particular instance, when we think about being out in public, let's say, for example, you are having to be in some sort of building that is community-based, meaning others are using it, there's a lot of traffic in there. Always evaluate what will I be doing when I'm out. So if you're in this building and you're saying, hey, there's going to be elevators versus escalators, and they're all going to the same destination. I would ask people, which one do you think is going to be the safer? Transportation. 
people would probably say, hey, my legs are going to be maybe less fatigued if I take the elevator, it's straight up, and that's it. But with an escalator, you at least have an option of more open air. So if there is that option, then I would tell people to take the escalator. Now, that would be less of a risk when we're talking about, let's say, air exposure of being on the you know elevator with someone that might accidentally cough and being in a small box. But you then look at the fact that when you're going up an escalator, for safety reasons, you might be holding on to that rail. So if you're holding on to the rail, it is essential that after you get off that you're looking for hand sanitizer at the top or you have your own accessible because you don't know how many people have touched that rail before you to go up that same escalator. So I'm just giving you two scenarios, how, yes, there's a button, there's a closed-in space on the elevator. But then going up the escalator, you have more open air, but you still have some risk factors, including touching the rail. So my point is, is that when we are thinking about where we are at in any setting, how do we evaluate what risk factors are around us? So secondly, if we know as well that we are out and let's say it's at a grocery store, there's pen pads, there's counters that we're going to interact with, there's ink pens that we're going to interact with. Say to yourself, how many people have interacted with these same surfaces and these same items that I have? If I know that I have to use them, how do I ensure that I'm cleaning my hands shortly after using them, knowing that there may not be any resources around and that you can no longer make the assumption that people are wiping things down? I've been in lines where I've watched people, let's say, touch their nose and then grab that pen pad, and then they're getting ready to sign. It's an unawareness of what it is that we're doing sometimes when we are interacting with these surfaces. You may observe a healthcare worker that's coughing, not a healthcare worker, a regular store worker that's directly coughing into their hands, but they got gloves on, and they're now getting ready to take your card or handle your items. It's just awareness. So I'm not giving people a step-by-step today, Santita, about what it is they need to do to stay safe as much as I am giving a lesson about mindfulness. Hmm. Mindfulness, being aware of what it is you are doing, being aware of your surroundings, and being aware of what others are doing that could potentially be the make or break between you ending up with one of the viruses that are currently circulating around. Yes, we have a cocktail of flu, respiratory sphincter virus, COVID, common colds. We have stomach viruses going around. These are all things that can be eliminated and can be avoided, and it is not necessary that we get ill. So we do not have to normalize getting ill if we practice mindfulness of our activities, remind ourselves that pathogens are things that we cannot see that can get us sick. But that if we understand that they are there, then we'll know to protect ourselves from them by staying ready so we don't have to get ready. (laughs) Dr. Shanina Knighton, you know, I just, my mind started going to the pads, uh, 
that you use when you're out in public and that you touch and someone who might have had the flu, whether they know it or not, or, or just anything. You know, you touch it and, you know, mindlessly, we just we just go on. And I mean, I'm not mad at anybody, but we do need to become more mindful, more mindful. Just function with greater care, everybody, and you can be healthful. Everybody, let's talk about what happened in the West Bank in a hospital. Uh, Dr. Shanina Knight in hospitals are supposed to be off limits in war. And certainly someone who is in a bed with paralysis is not supposed to get shot to death. But that's what the IDF did (laughs) at a hospital in the West Bank. I mean, what is going on, everybody? And when will the killing stop? They're talking about a six-week pause. Why can't we talk about peace? And then at the top of the hour, we will talk about Brittany Watts, someone from your way. Uh, Dr. Knighton, 34-year-old black woman, mother, uh, who had gone to the emergency room more than once, miscarrying. They kept sending her home. And then when she spontaneously miscarried, they threatened her with prison. With prison. Back with more of the Santita Jackson Show in just a few minutes. This is the Santita Jackson Show. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Santita Jackson Show. WCPT 820, the nation's largest progressive talk radio station and AM 950 radio. The voice of progressive Minnesota. It is a joy to be with you today on Wednesday, January 31st, 2024. As we talk about Brittany Watts at the top of the hour, young mother, uh, miscarrying. She'd been sent home from the emergency room more than once, more than once. And then when she spontaneously miscarried, she was going to be imprisoned for, uh, really for not caring for a corpse. What do you think about that, everybody? What do you think about this? And she's African-American, and this happens to African-American women more than anyone, but it's happening to women everywhere. We just saw a white mother in Texas having to deal with something similar, although, um, I mean, it's just awful. It's awful. But right now, let's talk about something else that's awful. They're calling it rule of law, Western style. Israeli assassination squad kills three in a Janine hospital in the West Bank. A team of Israeli forces, they were disguised as civilians, even as a new parent and medical staff. They raided this hospital in the West Bank on Tuesday and they assassinated three Palestinians, one 18 year old who was already, who had been in the hospital, paralyzed since October. They said he was Hamas. Okay, I don't know what he could have done. And journalists on the ground, according to this Common Dreams report, say that there was no apparent attempt to arrest these individuals. They were just killed, some people say, in cold blood. So what do you think about that? How, what happened here? How does this work? This is something that the International Red Cross says is out of bounds. You're not supposed to go into a hospital and kill Patients, You're not supposed to go into a hospital and kill people. Even in warfare, hospitals are supposed to be out of bounds. But somehow or another, this did not happen here. They came in dressed up as civilians and started killing people. Who does that? 
Mm, Ari Bloomcats, executive editor of In These Times. Keith Zelinsky, activist with If Not Now. You got to help me with this because I don't quite understand, Ari, what happened here. Did I miss something? Well, I think one of the things that I'm thinking about in regards to this right now is not necessarily the details of exactly what happened here, but some of the overall lessons that we can learn from this. And one of those is that Israel is engaged in a genocide, and there's no tactic, no strategy, no length to which they won't go to absolutely kill and ethnically cleanse and get rid of the Palestinian people right now. And we're seeing this, you know, we've seen this a lot in Gaza, we've seen this a lot in the West Bank, and, you know, one of the things that I think is interesting here as well is that, you know, this occurred in the West Bank, this occurred in Jenin, and I think we're seeing an expansion of the violence in the West Bank as well. But we've seen over and over again since October 7th some of the most disgusting, some of the most abhorrent things that we've ever seen anywhere in terms of not necessarily war, but just violence and assault and overall assassination. And, you know, we, the way that Israel has been going about its bombing has been described as a mass assassination machine. So whether or not it's this sort of disgusting tactics at hospitals, which, you know, are, of course, supposed to be protected targets, uh, or not supposed to be a target for protected location, or elsewhere, we're seeing the most extreme depths of violence, and we're seeing the most extreme depths, in many ways, of the evil of the human condition, and it's horrifying on just so many levels. Is there any recourse... I mean, this is the International Red Cross. The Red Cross says this is not supposed to happen. You don't go and you don't go and kill someone who is paralyzed in a bed, Ari. I mean, this is this is insane. If anything, if, yeah, if you I mean, say he's Hamas and you wait till he gets well and you wait till he gets out the hospital, you don't go into a hospital and kill somebody in the bed, really. I mean, I think that we've seen. These types of things over and over again. I mean, one of the things that always struck me since October 7th was, you know, we remember when they all of a sudden, when the Israelis all of a sudden said, okay, everybody's got to move south and we got to move all of these people south into southern Gaza. Well, how are people with disabilities supposed to do that? How are people in hospitals supposed to do that? How are elderly folks like supposed to do that? And, you know, We've seen this over and over again, the Israeli military and Israeli government going after folks that are the most vulnerable here. We know that women and children are making up the overall, the overall uh, bulk of those who are killed uh, right now. We know that there's you know, nearly half of those killed are children right now. We're talking about the Israeli military killing the most vulnerable, killing, you know, the sort of in many ways, like, easiest to kill. Like, it's just so disgusting abhorrent on just so many levels. And, you know, we've seen all this scary stuff with hospitals 
uh, you know, previously as well. You know, we've seen the Israeli military plant evidence in the hospitals trying to justify uh, their violence against them. Um, you know, we've seen these claims that they're being used, you know, one way or another. And it's just, it's, it's just so horrifying. It's really horrifying to think about. And, you know, Santita, the other day when we had all the mothers uh, on the show, you know, one mm-hmm. of the things that, you know, Heba Galloway talked about in her article was all of these babies in the NICUs uh, who, you know, were... Um, were, you know, deeply affected by this thing, were, and many of whom died because of this. And it's just, I mean, it's just absolutely horrifying. And, you know, there's one other dimension here that I think is, like, especially nefarious. And that dimension is the fact that, you know, one of the things that, you know, the Israeli government frequently talks about with regards to the Hamas attack on October 7th is this overall line that Hamas came and killed people in their bed killed elderly people in their beds and things like that, right? There's no separation. There's no difference between what's happening there and then going into a hospital and killing people in their bed there. Um, There's really no separation at all. And that's, you know, it's it's just disgusting all all around here. You know, it's, this is, this is really unsettling, Keith Zielinski. It's, I mean, because this is happening with our eyes wide, shut, I guess. There's no hue and cry, there's no outcry about this. I think the international community and especially Americans have to ask themselves where is the red line for Israel? Where will they stop? Where won't they stop? Because all I'm seeing is a constant escalation by the Israeli military, by the Israeli government to dehumanize and brutalize Palestinians, whether they're in Gaza or whether they're in the West Bank. And the genocide in Gaza has served as a great distraction for them for the increasing raids and the settler violence in the West Bank that has taken place since October 7th. And this is unfortunately a harrowing example of that. I mean, imagine, imagine if Palestinian fighters had done this and the roles were flipped. Imagine. You know, but it, it, it would, it would be, it would be number one, it would be blown up in the media and all of that, we understand. We understand that story, and I think I'm glad that it's finally being told. What concerns me overall is our cruelty to each other. Keith and Ari and Reverend Dr. Yeary, who was a veteran, and Attorney Daryl Jones. It's just so cruel. I don't understand. You know, I've had Matt Ho on our show, veteran who really is a... He is a peace advocate now, and he talks about moral injury, moral injury, Reverend Dr. Yuri, and how, you know, when we see a lot of these veterans when they come home, they're suffering from moral injury because you have to undo everything that you've been taught in Sunday school in order to be a killer. And with all due respect, that's what you have to become. But I don't know how you can even wrap your mind around going to kill someone in a hospital bed who's paralyzed. Reverend Dr. Yeary. Well, 
good morning, Santita. I don't have an answer for that level of brutality and inhumanity. If we think about the rules of warfare, hospitals are typically uh, zones where uh, conflict and combat are not exacted because of the nature of their mission, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it is the place where both sides would, re- in, in their own environments, would rely upon care. So that's one. We've, we've changed the context that there's no place that is safe for extending care for the human condition, the, the ills and the issues that affect everybody, not just one side or the other. That's one. But the second thing is, and I think we have to be clear, that uh, the prime minister has been very, very clear even when he has anticipated or kind of forecast how long this this conflict is going to last, he didn't describe it in terms of a condition or an outcome. The outcome has been clear. The outcome is, is permanent displacement, reclaiming of land, and the annihilation of a people. And so if that's the mindset going in, we need not be shocked nor surprised that we start to see these kinds of incidents with this kind of tongue-in-cheek justification that says, oh, by the way, these work. Now, I will, I will suggest to you that if they had identified these folks as uh, these persons as Hamas, typically we see it every day uh, in the United States that persons who are believed to have committed a crime, who find themselves in the hospital, they actually have uh, officers in the room guarding them until they receive their care and then can go through the process system. I'm not saying that's necessarily the right way, but there is a way other than slaughtering somebody in the hospital. Because what you then do is you impose fear, and yes, the word is terror, on folks who would otherwise seek care, uh, avoiding care because they're afraid that some other harm might come to them simply because they're in the wrong place at the wrong time. And so this is the most egregious form uh, of hostility that can be imposed on the people. Not not to mention that when we talk about the, the moral injury, uh, the reason many of us go into the military is to serve, not mm-hmm. to kill. That the notion of defending the interests and protecting our community, that's a noble act. When we find ourselves in these unjust conflicts where we have these arbitrary reasons for taking another life, now it begins to wreak havoc on our psyche, on our spirit, uh, and it makes it very difficult for us to return to this place called normalcy because the tragedy of this extreme form of injustice has been uh, imposed upon us and perpetrated on others. And so we've got to look at the far reaches. We have to be outraged about the incident, but we have to be very cautious about how far it will reach. Because once you get to this point, it's almost like a tipping point. How low, how far will we go uh, for the purposes of serving uh, the the needs of trying to literally eliminate a people for an unjust reason? But it goes to, Keith, your point about really... Not imposing limits on people, not saying, hey, you've gone too far. I mean, and this, even though people don't say it out, out, I mean, out loud, this is such a bad look for Israel. 
And for the people of Israel who don't deserve this, because many of them, they don't even want Netanyahu in there. Now, do they have their problems with Palestinians? Absolutely. Do they need to work on that? Absolutely. But this is, this is so cruel and so vile and so underreported. Keith, this is very dangerous, and particularly in the United States. Oh, of course. I mean, we've heard it from John Kirby himself, uh, one of the main spokespersons for uh, the U.S. State Department, that there is no there is no red lines for Israel. There is none. And Biden has clearly expressed that through his lack of action. So Israel has the, the absolute green light to do these things. Because Biden refuses to pick up the phone and say no more military aid, no more vetoes on the U.N. Security Council until you clean up your act. That's just not going to happen. Biden has received tons of money from the Israel lobby over his lifespan as a politician because he is pro-Israel at by all means necessary. He doesn't believe in the humanity of Palestinians. We saw a Palestinian in his own government resign over this. So, I mean, I'm unfortunately, like many, I'm, I'm just not surprised by what happened here. Ari, it's just... Maybe I'm shocked, but not surprised. But this, to me, this is a red line, Ari. This is a red line. You don't walk into hospitals doing this. And, and you know, on all they're doing is increasing, amping up the ire of the Palestinian people and people who sympathize with them. And there are people who sympathize with them. I'd say much, if not most, of the world is on their side. That's This is awful. And it's awful particularly for how we practice warfare. And I don't believe in that anyway. Um, but the fact that this is allowed, that warfare is conditional, that mean, Ari, this is... This is out of bounds. You don't walk into a hospital and kill people or patients. <laughs> you you don't do that. Yeah, and I mean absolutely not. But I also, you know, would offer that the Israeli military and the Israeli government has been doing unforgivable things for 75 years now. Mm-hmm. Israel was founded on massacres. Israel was founded on the displacement of Palestinians. Israel was developed on systems of apartheid and ethnic cleansing. It has been abhorrent from day one, and I think that's what a lot of folks are recognizing right now, is that the entire project of this state right now is one that's built on a type of settler colonialism that's extremely violent and genocidal. And, you know, I, you know, tend to have like a hard time in terms of, you know, debating sort of like levels of atrocity and levels of death. One of the things that we talk about in 
Jewish communities is this teaching from Perkei Avot, which is that to kill one life is to take an entire world. And, you know, this is something that we believe deeply. And it's horrifying to think about the taking of so many lives here over and over again and how many worlds we've killed. And I think that, you know, there's some other dimensions here, too. And one of the things that I've also been thinking about a lot in regards to this is, you know, before October 7th, there were some really profound and powerful nonviolent movements by Palestinians in, you know, the aim of Palestinian liberation and the aim of ending the occupation and the name of ending the apartheid. And one of those was the Great March of the Return. And what we saw during the Great March of the Return was the Israeli military using snipers to shoot, pretty much shoot off the legs of Palestinians who were, you know, peacefully protesting to, um, you know, shoot and assassinate Palestinians who were doing this. And one of the most disgusting things from this as well is, you know, there's all these videos that came out with Israeli citizens, you know, basically setting up chairs and sort of like, almost like watching a movie situation where they could watch the Israeli military shoot off and injure and, you know, maim all of these Palestinians who were being nonviolent. And it's just abhorrent all over the place. We've seen the use of white phosphorus here. We've seen, you know, the Israeli military admit to knowing that there are hundreds and hundreds of civilians where they are dropping these, you know, one-ton bombs over and over again. We've seen now, I think, you know, double about the amount of bombs that, you know, in terms of power and tonnage that were dropped on, uh, you know, uh, Hiroshima. I mean, we're talking about just the depth and of evil on top of evil on top of evil. And I think there's, you know, we, we talk about like, what's the red line here? And I think that's like an important question. But for me, the other question is like, do we really think that it's possible to the Israelis really think that it's possible to bomb our way out of them, to kill our way out of them? And it's not, we know violence begets violence. We know that violence and this will not make Israelis safer. It will not make Jews around the world safer. It will not make anyone safer at all. And we are seeing now this expansion very much of the violence into the region as a whole. You know, we're well, seeing hold, hold on. Jordan, we're hold, seeing everything, yeah. Well, no, hold on. Reverend Dr. Yuri, I'm thinking of moral injury now. I mean, what does this do to a human being uh, what does this do to a human being? Just, just, just. I have a couple of minutes here because to me, that is what is is frightening to me for our Jewish brothers and sisters. What this and and to and to all of us, you know, when when we do this, this is to me this is dangerous. Reverend Doctor Yuri, we've got two minutes. It, 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 it is. It is dangerous in the most sinister way because 
um, it it creates a, a death of the soul. Uh, the moral injury, uh, in many ways, is is almost fatal or somewhat fatalistic in terms of its impact because there is such uh, an overt and obvious contradiction between what you've been taught and now what you've been told, right, what you've been directed to do, or what you're observing on behalf of whatever this principle is. I think we have to be very, very clear about what is the intent of the Israeli government and what are the desires of the Israeli people. The assumption that this government is acting in the best interest of its people, I think, has been uh, disproven long ago. And so now the moral injury that we all can see amongst folks who are uh, engaged in in the military and combat is now extending. The moral injury is almost creating a, a, a breadth of what we would call lament. Uh, that now it is it is burdening the people for whom you say you are trying to protect. And so every time this gets played out again and again and again, not only does it have an effect on the soldier, it has an effect on the people the soldiers are trying to serve, trying to represent, trying to model. The whole point, when we talk about, if you go back and read The Art of War, The Art of War, the highest principle is having the weapons of warfare but never having to use them. That's the art of war. The art of war is not annihilating your enemy. And so we've not yet mastered that. And this is kind of the sinister, cynical nature of what this conflict has become because we've we've used an incident to justify uh, a, a sense of devastation that we've not seen. And the world is being forced, particularly the United States is being forced to be complicit. And this is where the moral injury is for the nation. We don't have to go along and we should not go along. This is the moment where to avoid the moral injury, we have to be morally clear and morally intentional so that we don't find ourselves in the same predicament. Mm. We're all there, everybody. Everyone, if you're silent, you're complicit. Ari Bloomcats, in these times, a magazine executive editor, Keith Zelensky, keep doing what you're doing. Going to see you at City Hall in a little bit. There is a ceasefire resolution that is on the table. If Chicago passes it, it will be the largest city in the United States to call for a ceasefire. Mayor Brandon Johnson supports it. Up to 22 alders do. But what about the 28 others? Going to hear about that from Jonah Carson in just a minute. And then Brittany Watts. Why was this woman who had gone to the emergency room with a miscarriage, on the brink of miscarriage, why was she turned down? Why was she sent home? Why did she nearly die? Why was she nearly imprisoned? Back in just a minute. This is the Santita Jackson Show. Hey everybody, welcome to the Santita Jackson Show. Can you believe it's the end of January? Well, it is Wednesday, January 31st, 2024. I am Santita Jackson, coming to you from WCPT, the nation's largest progressive talk radio station, and AM 950 Radio, the voice of progressive Minnesota. 
Hey, everybody, let's talk about Brittany Watts, the young Ohio mother uh, who was almost put in prison because no one would take care of her when she was miscarrying. Can you believe she waited in a hospital emergency room in pain for more than eight hours and no one would give her the drug that has been delivered for about 50 years, mifepristone, to help her to spontaneously expel a fetus that had already died? Wow. She almost went to prison over this. And this disproportionately impacts black women, but it's, it's impacting all women. So we got to talk about that today. On the Santita Jackson Show, I can hear some, I think I've got, I'm going to turn over my headlines to Jonah Karsh, because I think that we have got a really, really big story that is, should, uh, well, whatever it is, it's always going to be a big story, but I need you to kind of mute what's going on in the background, Jonah, if you're, if you're out and about. And there is a ceasefire resolution on the floor of the of City Hall today. If it is passed, this will be the largest city in the United States of America to call for a ceasefire. Our mayor, Brandon Johnson, endorses it. And initially, only eight members of the city council endorsed it. And now it's more than 20, up to about 22. Will Four or five more others come over to the right side today. Well, we are going to see. We'll be down at the City Hall today starting at 9 o'clock so that we can find out exactly what's going to happen. So, Jonah Carson, from If Not Now. Jonah, the balance of my headlines go to you. Thank you so much, Santita. I think you said it perfectly. Yeah, this is a movement that started in response uh, to the just devastating genocidal violence that we're seeing against the people of Gaza. And after uh, the attacks of October 7th, instead of standing with the people of Israel, the city council said they were going to stand with the state of Israel. And they passed a resolution standing with the state of Israel in the, uh, as they prepared to carry out what is now, you know, what the ICJ has said is a plausible risk of genocide. And, you know, the stories that we see coming out of Gaza just every single day are so utterly horrific. We understand that uh, this is a moment where everyone needs to do their part to end the genocide, even those who feel like this is outside of their normal purview. I understand the city council doesn't consider international affairs, but this is one of those are you on the right side of history moments. This is one of those beloved community, collective humanity moments. And and uh, I'm really hoping that our city council ends up on the right side of history today. Um, you know, yesterday we saw, I'm not sure you saw Santita, but uh a bunch of Chicago public school students yes. uh, walked out of their classes and protested and occupied the lobby of City Hall chanting uh, for Palestine and in favor of this resolution. It was just tremendously inspiring. Um, and I and, and we know where our kids stand on this. We know where our city stands on this. Um, but we also know that there's organized opposition to this. Uh, and 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 last-minute efforts to scuttle the resolution, to do alternate resolutions that are watered down, that don't call for a ceasefire. So, um, you know, in the in the couple hours before the meeting, call your alderman's office when they open and tell them we need you to vote for Alderman Laspada and Alderman Rodriguez Sanchez's ceasefire resolution. No watering down. Vote for the resolution. Call for a ceasefire uh, for the people of Gaza. All right, and we're meeting at City Hall today at 9 o'clock. Get there, get there, get there. Everybody needs to get on the right side of history. That having been said, the vote needs to reflect where Chicago and our alders are. I don't think you can lose today. 
by finding out exactly where people are. Sending you so much love today and can't wait to be with you. Um, in just a few hours. So everybody, I want you to call us at 773-763-9278. Do you think it's important important for, uh, for Chicago to take this stand? Please call me and let me know what you think. 773-763-9278 as we look at all that we as we look at all that we are seeing, the raiding of the hospital by the civilians and on and on and on. I mean, is it now time for Chicago to take a stand? Everybody, we've got legal Q&A with CK. Let's talk about Brittany Watts, 34-year-old mother, 34-year-old mother. She was in distress. She was miscarrying. And yet, um, <laughs> she couldn't get any care because of the overturning of Roe v. Wade. We used to use something called mifepristone that would help you to complete the process of terminating a pregnancy, particularly um, if you if the pregnancy could not uh, really come to pass uh, because the child died in utero, uh, because the child poses a threat to the mother, and on and on and on and on it goes. But something happened here, and we need to talk about that because she went to the hospital more than once, CK. And when you read... Just read through her case. It is absolutely stunning that she waited more than eight hours in an emergency room at one point. I'm sure in unspeakable pain, and no one would help her. They could not help her. I mean, and a nurse called the police after she miscarried. How does that happen? I mean, and it happens most frequently to black mothers. And it turns out she ended up having a miscarriage anyway. Even though she could have had sepsis, it could have killed her. It's like no one cared, TK. Talk to me. Give us a synopsis of this case. Well, Santita, you you have um, hit the most important points in this case. This is as we, I want us to look at this case through the prism of before the reversal of Roe versus Wade. During childbirth or leading up to childbirth, black women disproportionately were at risk as their cries of pain were not taken seriously. I say this not based on just, you know, pulling it out of the air. There, there are statistical analyses have been concluded that have, that, that have said that black women's cries of pain, particularly in childbirth, are either unnoticed or not taken seriously. And I have indeed litigated cases where this has been exactly the issue. So that's where we have to start. Then you, then you put on top of that the reversal of Roe versus Wade and the reality and the fact that many states have passed anti-abortion laws. So that's the legal framework within which we've got to look at this case involving Ms. Watt. She's in Ohio, which is one of those states that has anti-abortion laws. She has, she, she starts hemorrhaging. She starts bleeding. So she goes to her doctor and her doctor says, oh, no, you got to go to the emergency room. You've got to go because she's sufficiently advanced in her pregnancy. And I'm paraphrasing just so that we can get through it, the timeline quickly. She goes to the hospital and it's St. Joseph's Warren Hospital at 8.28 a.m. local time for about eight hours. She does not receive any significant treatment. They do know there's been, there's been an abruption and premature rupture of the membrane. 
So her doctor, I, I wanted to mention, prior to going to the emergency room, told her that her fetus was no longer viable. Okay, so she knows, she understands that her baby is no longer viable. So well, wait a minute, hold on. Is, if I could add this, she's also a medical receptionist, so she functions in the space, right? She functions in the space. She understands this. And, you know, by the time if you have basic prenatal care, you understand when something is wrong. And she had prenatal care. She knew something was wrong. So now she knows that her child is no longer viable. So just think of the emotional impact of that. But let's put that aside because it gets worse. She goes to the emergency room knowing her child is not viable because now there's a question of what she needs to do to save her life. She's had an abruption and premature rupture of the membrane. Her white blood cell count is more than twice of what it had been in the past. And the doctors are telling her that she needs not some treatment, but immediate treatment before she finds herself at death's door. This is an emergency. It's critical. It's crucial. She goes to the hospital for help. They do not help her. They're sitting around, you know, and she's asking, pleading, can, can somebody help me? They don't help her. So she leaves the hospital. The doctors let her know that's not a good idea. But she said, I've got to leave. Nobody's helping me. I to her what they're doing is they're running this situation by her, the ethics committee, because they understand that Ohio law, which is now interposed in this medical crisis and emergency, has mandated that the doctors not do what medically they should do to potentially save this woman's life because her fetus is no longer viable. So she's at great risk. So then she, that, so then she goes ahead and she continues the hemorrhage, and she does, in fact, have a miscarriage. She comes back to the hospital, and she basically, Santita, does not receive the care because the hospital is afraid or feels that it cannot intervene in this woman's care because of Ohio law or Ohio's anti-abortion law. This is one example of thousands of examples that are happening, and they're hitting African-American women disproportionately because, again, the context that we find ourselves in, and this is a reality, is that the, the cries of black women when they are about to deliver or when they are pregnant are, are largely met with deaf ears. This is a nationwide crisis. This is not unique to Ohio. And then this happens. So this has happened to women. It happens a lot here in Atlanta. There are organizations that are trying to address this, but it's happening so frequently because when you're pregnant, I know this having been pregnant, when you're pregnant, anything can happen. Anything can happen. This can happen that might necessitate a medical intervention with, that would be akin to an abortion, a DNC. They call it a lot of different things, but that's what happens. So why, why are we talking about this? Because this is a crisis. This is not something that we need to keep our eye on. This is a crisis. This is the result of the reversal of Roe versus Wade. There, yes, there are legal issues associated with it, but the U.S. Supreme Court has said it's up to the states to determine what they're going to do in terms of these abortion laws, and many of them have passed these draconian laws that are disproportionately impacting African-American women, but really all women, and putting them at risk. And many women are dying as a result of these laws. And this is going unnoticed. Um, it's being documented slowly because there aren't enough organizations to cover this. And if you are a woman who doesn't have the resources to get on a plane, or maybe medically you can't get on a plane, you can't travel to another jurisdiction to, to get the type of medical intervention that you need, you're going to be stuck and you may have to carry a fetus that is not viable, meaning your baby is dead inside your body. Tragic. And that's what happened to her. That's 
that's what happened to her. So I'd like to hear, we've got an incredible panel, but we've got the incomparable Janice Mathis, who is um, part of our panel, lawyer extraordinaire, civil rights leader extraordinaire, human rights leader extraordinary, and and has, has proven her weight in this country and in this world that she's always on the issue. So I'd love to hear from Janice Mathis and see what she's um, sensing about this and where she sits in Washington, D.C. Well, good morning, Santita, and good morning, C.K. I'm smiling at the nice words because it sounds as if you're just describing yourself and not me. But (laughs) I wondered as I read the article, how did the police know to go to her home after she had the miscarriage? And then I kept reading. The people who were supposed to be giving her care turned into criminal investigators and called the police. Rather than giving her care, they called the police and sent them to her home rather than giving her the treatment that she needed. And then there's this whole discussion about whether the pregnancy was unintended or unwanted. Unintended or unwanted, she's a human being and deserves treatment. This whole victim-shaming, victim-blaming mentality that the right wing is espousing is extremely troubling. Not only did she spend eight hours in the ER on one day, over three days she spent 19 hours waiting for treatment, according to one account. And she was told, not that we're uh, covering our behinds and looking at our ethics strategy, uh, it would it, inducing labor would endanger your health. That's lying to your patient. Um, practicing defensive medicine. And, and think about the trauma. Can you imagine you miscarry in the toilet? You take, you scoop it out and take some of it outside and put it in a bucket. Will you ever forget it? Will, will you ever be able to wipe that from your mind? Thank goodness for the grand jury that, that refused to indict. You know, sometimes grand juries made up of common everyday citizens. They got it right in this case, thank goodness. And CK, I want you to answer for me whether they talk about it was punishable up to 12 months, but then it was also characterized as a felony. Which one was it? We know that commonly only misdemeanors receive a maximum sentence of 12 months. And then why did she wait? Not because she didn't want to induce labor. She begged them for treatment. The hospital lied to her and told her if we induce labor, it could endanger your health. Well, guess what? Carrying a deteriorating, a decomposing fetus can endanger your health, too. Think about the decomposition. The death was bad enough, but then the decomposition that followed it after three or four days or a week, how long had the fetus not been viable? And I think rather than blaming the sick, you've got to think about where the blame really belongs. It belongs on policymakers who are more concerned about getting reelected than they are about health equity. Um, and then activists versus apathetic voters. You know, one thing that hurt me about this whole situation, her family and friends, while, she, while her case was being deliberated before the grand jury, they were out in the street making noise. I don't, I can't say it for sure, but I have to believe that that helped Brittany avoid criminal prosecution. Um, they staged a protest, and we have to remember, we can't be silent in the face of malpractice and silent in the face of women being treated like 
cattle. Um, Absolutely. Not even like cattle. You know, these folks love their animals. They, do, oh, they yeah, don't they love human beings. Out there doing a, making sure that there was all the treatment that was necessary if it was a prize cow or something. Yeah. But not for a woman. Absolutely, but you know, CK, we've got Reverend Dr. Yuri's going to be leaving us. He's got to go to court at the in just a few minutes, and I wanted you okay. to be able to get some feedback from him before he goes. I definitely will. Let me just inject one thing: medical negligence. I do medical negligence. This is a problem because clearly those doctors engaged in medical negligence. Clearly, the nursing staff, everyone that touched her, that hospital engaged in medical negligence. But because of the laws in Ohio. And say she went to try and get and, and, and seek advice from a lawyer, it would complicate that case. And even if someone did bring a case on her behalf, here she has been arrested, and she went before this case went before a grand jury, and that of course of course poses complications for a civil case. Now I do want to well, hear course, from Doctor, and, and, and that further prejudices the victim. But Dr. Todd Yeary, I know you're getting ready to leave, so we want to hear from you. You're up there in Baltimore, the DMV. What do you say? Um, let me let me start with. Sometimes you're just kind of held speechless. Uh, the the level of dehumanization that goes with this whole uh, scenario is is a problem. Uh, internal hemorrhaging very often is fatal because of delay in treatment and care. So while there's a meeting about what the system might be blamed for, what they can and cannot do, this mother's health, her very life, is put at risk intentionally, procedurally. That's a problem. Uh, the second piece is we've created this system now where for uh, many women, women of color, poor women, their very humanity is left subject to debate simply because they find themselves uh, in a situation where they are would-be mothers. That somehow or other someone can sue, someone not even connected to your situation could be able to have standing in court to hold you accountable, to hold you criminally responsible for something that you cannot control, which is biology is problematic. What we have done, not just with the overturning of Roe, but the simultaneous passing of laws in the wake of the overturning of Roe that are so draconian that the one thing that you come away with uh, in many of these states is that women are no longer people. They are clearly property and they're property of the state. The state gets to decide what they can do with their bodies, when they can do with their bodies, how they can do with their bodies. And when they're not sure, they'll just hold a meeting and allow their lives to hang in the balance. It is the most inhumane form of policy indifference that I have seen. And in many instances, I believe it is the most extreme violation of international human rights because it is denying the dignity of a woman to have her own agency and how she cares for herself and her personal health. And so this should be a, a really a call to arms, not just for women, but for the people who love women that we, our sisters, our brothers, our, our, our fathers, our sons, we have to be in this fight too. This cannot be left uh, as a matter of what do women feel about and this whole issue about just naming it as, a, as abortion. This was not just about abortion. It was about her maternal health, about her overall health and the dignity of her person that was being held in the balance while folks had a church meeting. 
that's a whole problem on its best day, and we must do better. <laughs> C.K., Attorney Janice Mathis, Ari Bloomcat, Attorney Daryl Jones, Keith Zielinski, everybody should weigh in here. This is not a black, white, brown, yellow, or red issue. It's not male, female, trans. It's a human issue. How do we treat each other? It seems that's been the theme today. Do you walk into a hospital and kill a patient because you're looking for someone who is your enemy combatant? Is that what we do? No, that's not the way this is supposed to go. If someone's supposed to writhe in pain for eight hours, you know her health is at not her health, her life is at risk, and you do nothing? You have a meeting on policy? No, everyone who was within, if she was within their purview of care, they ought to be sued, CK. Shameful. It's shameful. It's shameful. It's shameful. And this is what happens when non-trained doctors, those lawmakers have never set foot in a medical school, Mm-mm. have no training, and they're making decisions, medical decisions for women. And also medical when your policy, when your politics are driving policy instead of letting your morality drive it. This is what we've got here. Back with more of the Santita Jackson Show in just a few minutes. This is the Santita Jackson Show. Back with the Santita Jackson Show. As we talk about Brittany Watts, 34-year-old mother, African-American woman, who almost went to prison because she had a miscarriage. But it's a little bit more complex than that. She went to the hospital, presented herself more than once. Her life was in danger. It was very clear that the fetus, that the child was not going to make it. But they made her go home. They made her go home knowing that she was on the verge of miscarriage, knowing that afterbirth, trapped inside of the body, a decomposing fetus, as you put it, Attorney Janice Mathis, it will kill you. Mm, Attorney C.K. Hoffler, this is frightening. It makes you, you understand why now more and more black women are opting not to go into the hospital to have their babies. Abby Phillip just did a fabulous a fabulous piece on that on CNN. She had her child at home. <laughs> Low risk, but she said she didn't want to go to a hospital. Mm-mm. Absolutely. Wow. And, that, and that is becoming the trend. Midwives um, are very, very popular because of these types of things. Would love to hear from Daryl Jones, who's also in the DMV, attorney extraordinary civil rights, voting rights attorney. Because this is an issue on the ballot. This is going to be an issue on the ballot. Daryl Jones, about this. Thank you, uh, Cynthia and CK. You know, this is an incredible issue. And let me tell you, you know, I've been listening to the conversation and what Brittany Watts has gone through is, is just, you know, nothing less than uh, uh, horrific. But let me tell you, you know, this is where I think people have got to uh, understand where the, where the rubber meets the road, as they say. One of the things that, uh, uh, one of the reasons that Brittany Watts finds herself in this situation is because of the legislature in Ohio that had passed all of these bills, this legislation, which really restricted uh, a woman's access to reproductive health and dealing with her, uh, and dealing with abortions. The reason that the hospital is running to the ethics committee uh, for approval 
is because of the legislation that was passed in Ohio. This is what we have to remember. And, you know, Santita, uh, uh, as you know, I always say, let, let Vice President Harris go. Let her get out there and tell this story. Look, if we use Ohio as the example, we got to remember that it was in Ohio that a 10-year-old rape uh, victim mm-hmm. couldn't get an abortion and had to go to Indiana. It's in Ohio, where if you are pregnant, you can't use Medicaid to access uh, abortion care. In Ohio, you can't do that. Right now in Ohio, there's legislation that's being, con- uh, that's being considered that would, <laughs> that would uh, uh, really take the control out away from the voters of Ohio in determining abortion access. What do I mean by that? This is what I mean. The, there are conservative uh, legislators in Ohio right now that are uh, realized that they lost this this past constitutional amendment uh, with what was it sixty whatever sixty seventy percent of Ohio voters that said that they should continue to have abortion access. So what are they doing? They're now coming up with legislation to say that the legislature, as uh, on its own, will be the entity that can determine what abortion access uh, women have in Ohio without the courts serving as a backdrop, as a restrictive, it would be completely legislative driven. This is all in Ohio. So when we look at what's happening to Brittany Watts and what's, what has occurred to Brittany Watts and the psychological impact that it's had on her, you know, it's going to be even greater as this legislature looks to, you know, to uh, remove the rights from women to have access to this. You know, I don't feel sorry for the hospital, but the hospital's in a situation where they don't know what to do. They're afraid to make decisions. Well, if the hospital's afraid to make the decision because they don't really understand the law, if the doctors are concerned because they don't really understand the law and they don't want to be locked up, where does that leave the other Brittany Watsons that are out there? If but Daryl, wait a minute. Are that confused. Daryl, they might not understand the law, but they take a Hippocratic oath. They don't just mm-hmm. follow the law. They've taken an oath, which is deeper than the law to me. First, do no harm. That's their job. Mm-hmm. Now, if you're going to go past your, what you're supposed to be doing, what are you doing? Well, you yeah. know, that's, 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 that's the situation that that's the situation that the doctors find themselves in. And I've lectured, I talked about this, I lectured for the National Medical Association. This is exactly the issue that the doctors are finding themselves in. This is the problem, especially if you're a doctor yeah. of color and you've taken an oath. But but, you know, I, we have other guests, um, Santita, as well, that I'd love to hear on because this is such an important issue. I know that Ari Blumkatz, who's the executive editor of In These Times magazine, would love to hear what you have to say about this, Ari. Um, thanks so much. And, um, TK, you know, it's a real honor to be uh, on a panel with you. Um, just uh, really in awe of all the work um, that you've done and all the fighting for justice that you've done. Um, there's a couple of things that I'm thinking about here. Um, one of them is, you know, I'm thinking about this a bit in context of how in the United States we think about women and children in general and devaluing the lives of women and children in general. And I think, you know, one of the things to consider here is what's happening to the mortality rate of women and children, and particularly black women um, as well. And we've seen, you know, some really scary numbers about the increases in mortality rates for 
black women, um, particularly black uh, uh, maternal mortality for black women as well. And, you know, I think that some of the data here is that, you know, we had like a low of, you know, 5.3 deaths in 2001. You know, we've had like really highs of, you know, like 29.7 deaths. Like previously, we've seen deaths like increase from 1999 to 2019 from, you know, 10.7 deaths and up. And when it comes to child mortality, we're also seeing increases. You know, we saw increases from 2022 to now as well. And these are really scary situations when we are living in a country in which, you know, child mortality and mortality of black women is just, you know, constantly increasing. And that, I think, tells us something about our country and our values and where we're going. So, you know, that's one thing. Another thing that I'm thinking about is, you know, most of my family is in Ohio. I've lived in Ohio. Um, you know, I spent a lot of time in Columbus, and I taught in schools in um, Cleveland um, as well. And, you know, I'm really, you know, proud of a lot of the folks that were fighting for issue one. Um, and it is so scary indeed that what the state legislature is looking to do around the response oh, hold on to one second. One and- I can hear something in the – hold on one second, Ari. I can hear something in the background. Oh, yeah. Somebody – everybody, just put yourselves on mute. Until, I guess, until we call upon you again. Ari? So, so you know, I, um, you know, my mom was out, you know, outside of libraries and in front of uh, grocery stores, you know, getting folks to uh, uh, get out the vote for issue one and so many folks were. And so, you know, I want to, like, recognize that there is, you know, a great, like, swell in um, Ohio in support of reproductive justice. Um, But what we're looking at in Ohio overall is a state that, you know, has gone from being in many ways, you know, almost like a toss-up state. Um, You know, they used to have this thing, and, you know, as goes Ohio goes the nation when it comes to presidential elections. And that's, you know, long fallen by the wayside now. We have a extremely conservative um, you know, governments throughout Ohio. Sherrod Brown is the only state uh, elected uh, official, um, uh, you know, in terms of the congressional delegation who's a Democrat, and Sherrod is now facing, you know, really tough um, election, and I think the polls are really, really close uh, around that. And what we're seeing from this incredibly right-wing government in Ohio is not just attacks on reproductive justice, we're seeing attacks on uh, trans folks, we're seeing attacks on LGBTQ folks overall, we're seeing attacks on public schools, we're seeing attacks across the board in Ohio right now, and it is a very scary situation for so many folks um, there, and, um, you know, I think that one of the things that we can do as organizers, one of the things that we can do as people who believe in justice work is to really work to uplift a lot of the grassroots organizations in Ohio right now that are fighting back, that are pushing back against this incredibly right-wing um, government and this incredible assault on social services in Ohio and on social programs in Ohio and, frankly, on people of color and marginalized communities in Ohio as well. Mm. Oh, well, you know, one more thing, if you, if you don't mind. Sure, um, of course. 
you know, what, what you're seeing in Ohio uh, isn't just Ohio. You know, it, it, what you're seeing occur with reproductive freedom uh, is something that's really growing in other states because we know that in Mississippi and Missouri, they're now trying to take follows, uh, Ohio's lead and trying to stop voters from being able to weigh in on abortion access at the ballot, on having ballot mm-hmm. initiatives. So it's not just Ohio. This is, this is a conservative trend that you're seeing hit states across the nation. Mm. CK, we've got Keith Zielinski. Yes, and we're, I'd love to hear from Keith Zielinski. I mean, Keith, you're an activist. You are in this space like we all are on some level. So what do you say about this? Yeah, first of all, I just want to express my, you know, my my sympathies with this woman and her situation is absolutely terrible that this can happen in 2024 in the United States of America, where we just take these kinds of things for granted. And lo and behold, we obviously can't do that because these injustices are facing people marginalized communities, especially people of color every single day. And, you know, the, the fight for justice is still, we still have a long, long road ahead. So, yeah, I just, I'm just in awe. I can't believe that this is, that this is even happening in our, in our, in our day and time. So I, I don't really have a whole lot to express beyond that. Than just I'm horrified. I'm absolutely horrified. Well, also, Keith, how old are you, if I may ask? I'm 29. See, CK and Attorney Janice Mathis and, and Ari, to a lesser extent, but th- those of us of a certain age, um, Attorney Daryl Jones, this was what we thought was settled law, right, CK? I mean, we thought this fight... Absolutely. Okay. All right. So I'm I'm not misreading that piece. Okay. You are not misreading the fact that the U.S. Supreme Court reversed itself. Roe versus Wade was the law of the land. So you're not misreading that. We did think it was settled law. We did understand this. No matter what side you fall on in terms of abortion, women's reproductive rights and a woman's ability to make a decision, that for her own body, that was settled law. The fact that my grandmother had greater rights than I have is very disturbing. Very disturbing. Especially for young women coming out. And young men on college campuses. My sons had to school me on this and let me know that it wasn't just something that applied to women. It applies to young men. I didn't want to have a discussion with them about what they're doing. But on college campuses, people, of course, are having sex. And even if they're having protected sex, a woman can get pregnant. Mm -hmm. And then what are these children facing? It's devastating. It's devastating. So on, on a college campus? Oh, Janice, yes, yes, yes. Something just struck me. I just ran across a quote from Mercy Health, the hospital where Ms. Watts was being treated or, or not treated. Mm-hmm. The quote is, while the legislative environment has placed an increased focus on the necessity and importance of ethical review, our mission compels us to provide compassionate care to all. That's what they told CBS News. Would that were true? 
whatever the legislative environment is, something your dad used to say to us all the time, Reverend Jackson, even if you don't win, leave some footprints on the door. In other words, we have to try to kick down these inhumane policies as long as we have breath. Hmm. I'm, you know, I'm trying to wrap know, my mind around CK and Janice and everybody and, and Keith and Ari and Daryl. This woman being in the emergency room for eight hours, CK, <laughs> obviously in pain. The fact that the hospital personnel felt it was their duty to report her and to send the police exactly. to her house to collect the evidence so she could be arrested. And, 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 and you know, Janice Mathis, you said this best. Thank God we had a grand jury on that day that used good sense, common sense, and judgment. But I'm here to tell you, and we all know this, that on any given day, you can have a grand jury that says, oh, no, we need to make an example, and this Mm -hmm. is really criminal, and she needs to face, you know, 10 years in prison for this. And that could happen, and that is also happening. Well, why does this disproportionately hit black women? Um, For the same reason that people don't take black women's cries of pain seriously. It is because when we present to, I've seen this so many times in cases, when we present to the hospital and labor and delivery, somehow there's there's an implicit bias, implicit, explicit, downright, direct, whatever you want to call it, bias, that we, since we came from the slave ships and we were, we would have babies in the field, we should be okay with a little bit of pain. So when we are yelling and saying that we are in pain, there's something wrong, somehow, somewhere, that does not resonate with medical professionals in some hospitals. Mm-hmm. And well, no, no, no. We don't feel pain everywhere. to the same extent that white people do. That has been codified. That's, that, that's, 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 that, that's been studied. It's, it's been, been studied, studied, but also what's been studied is and that black women. So then, then the studies go further, that black women don't experience the same pain in childbirth. How could anyone do, make that study? So, so my, my point is that that's why it's happening disproportionately to black women. That's why we're also seeing black and brown women, and we're also seeing that poor women who don't have the resources who don't have access to and don't know how to reach out to lawyers and people to intervene. A lot of times, you're in an emergency situation. You don't have the luxury of calling around and trying to find a lawyer to represent you if you can get one. None of those things are options when you are pregnant or when you're miscarrying. I know what it is to have a miscarriage. Unfortunately, you're not thinking of those. You're thinking of your child that you are losing at that moment, and you're thinking of your own health. Because a woman is closest to death when she is bearing a child. That is a fact. We're closest to death. So you're not thinking of the logistic, the legal, the Ohio law, this law, that law, and this and that. You're thinking about saving your child's life and saving your life. And you're relying on the medical professionals to do something about it. But you can't. And now you've got someone as prominent as Abby Phillips. Now you've got, I mean, Jackie Robinson's daughter, the iconic Jackie Robinson's daughter, helped to pioneer midwifery, move it into the modern world. Of course, Sharon Robinson, we love her so much. Uh, she's been struggling with her health of late. But 
I mean, Ebony did articles on her. Her mother was a registered nurse. This was an issue when Sharon was capped at Howard 50 years ago. 50 years ago. Okay? When she became a a registered nurse because she went to Howard University. Whoop, whoop, Howard. Okay, I've done that. That having been said, I'm trying to figure out, you know, how, how how do we move this needle? To CK, we've got about five or six more minutes here. Because the fact that this woman walked into an emergency room, I mean, look, when I read that, that she was in this kind of pain, and and that her white blood cell count was through the roof, which meant she was feverish, and she might not have even been at herself in terms of her thinking. I mean, this. Well, Santita, I think, how do we move the needle? I think everybody should give closing thoughts on how, on that question, how do we move the needle? Starting with um, Janice Mathis. How do we move the needle, Janice? I think we have to join in the political discussion at a higher level and elevate this issue of health equity, not just maternal health, but health equity across the board. I don't care if you're talking about COVID or diabetes or heart disease. There's dark disparities in the incidence and outcome of these health issues on communities of color. And we can't leave it to Planned Parenthood and middle-class, middle-aged white women to lead this struggle. NCNW, the National Council of Negro Women, issued a very pointed statement after a very um, direct meeting of our board of directors in favor of reproductive freedom. We can't be afraid of our denominations or our politicians. We have to speak out for women's health and encourage the men who love us and believe in us to join us in this struggle. Absolutely. Ari, I'm going to ask you the same question. How do we move the needle? Well, I want to plus one that a lot. And, you know, I do think that there's an overall, you know, much larger question about healthcare in the United States and and how it's being, you know, valued in any way. And, you know, one of the things that we're seeing, you know, increasingly right now that just is so wild to me is, you know, we're seeing situations in which hospitals are now suing patients. Um, particularly around, you know, any debt that patients might have. And, you know, organizations like Debt Collective right now are working really hard on issues of medical debt, which so many Americans are wrestling with and dealing with. Um, You know, medical debt is something that, you know, I've dealt with um, as well. And there's just so many incredible barriers to, you know, reasonable care. And, you know, as, you know, was just mentioned as well, this is, of course, like falling hardest on people of color. It's, of course, falling hardest on marginalized communities. It's falling hardest on people with disabilities as well. And I think that, you know, Addie Barkin, you know, died not too long ago. And I think that it's really important, you know, folks get a chance to read Addie's testimonies in front of Congress about health care and Medicare for all. They're extremely powerful, and I think they speak to the direction that we all need to go in and a lot of the organizing that we need to go in around health care in this country um, and, what is, uh, and what's absolutely needed. And, 
you know, and then there's the other dimension, of course, that we need to deeply end medical apartheid, which has just been so baked, uh, you know, into the country since the founding that, you know, other panelists have mentioned here as well. Oh, you know what? We've got Lavonia. Girl, wait a minute. We have got Lavonia Perryman from Detroit. I got, (laughs) you know, we love Lavonia. Lavonia, you got, uh, we got about 90 seconds. Lavonia, you should have called in earlier because you should have been part of the panel. One of of the leading lights, indeed, one of my mentors in media and one of the veterans of the 84 and 88 campaigns, part of a key member of Reverend's media team. Uh, The last 90 seconds belong to you, Lavonia. I just want to share with folks, thank you so very much for always speaking the truth and speaking power uh, from pain. I just want to let folks know, even uh, you ask, how do we change this dynamic? I would like to say, why don't we look at connecting our churches and our schools and putting the information out there? There's a ready-made audience of women, 80% of the people who attend church right now in our churches are women. And that message needs to be driven down that we, we have your back and you can do something about what is happening. It is not just about the actual pregnancy. I'm looking at a statistic that says African-Americans, two times more sudden death syndrome among African-American women and babies, two times more than white women. Our babies die even after we bring them home because of the disparity in health care. We can do something about it. We must do something about it. And like you said, Janice, it is bigger than just one issue. It's about health care for the family. CK, the last 30 seconds are yours. Well, I think we got to go back to what Reverend Jackson has taught all of us. When we see this type of injustice, we have to really lean on the grassroots effort joining organizations, but we don't just need to join organizations. We need to uplift, contribute, and be active members of organizations that are pushing for healthcare justice and social justice. This is an issue that is severely impacting our communities, just like other issues, but it's going unnoticed. So we have to fight this fight. This is a fight worth fighting. And we don't, it doesn't matter if you're a Democrat or a Republican. It's a fight worth fighting. This isn't partisan. This is about people. Let that go. You had Robert Strauss, who was chairman of the Republican and Democratic Party back in the 70s. People don't pay attention to parties. People pay attention to policy and issues. Stay right there. Stay right there and let us save a life. Lift people and our lives and our prosperity and health above all of it. And move toward God, everybody. That's what we need to be aligning ourselves with. I love you. Can't wait to be with you on the Santita Jackson Show. Stay with me for just a couple minutes here on the Santita Jackson Show YouTube channel and Santita Jackson and Friends. Going to close everything out right here. I love you, everybody. Thank you, Henry, for a great show. Love ya.